0: You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver.
1: This is Kim, and welcome to the 61st episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's podcast, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at The Relationship Center or Instagram. Today, I'm going to be talking with my friend, Joe Santana, who is chairman of the CDO Power Circle, a research, training, and coaching association. Association members are diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders from well known companies that collectively generate close to three quarters of a trillion US dollars and employ close to 1 million employees. Joe is also the creator and host of the ERG Power Talk podcast and author of Supercharge Your ERGs. Currently, he's working on a book on how non-technical leaders can govern automation and AI. Joe, thanks so much for being here.
0: My pleasure being here. It's kind of strange now being on the other side of the table with you since you were a guest on my show.
1: I met Joe doing an interview with him and I thought, wow, he'd make a great guest on my diversity part of my show. So here he is. We have talked about a lot of things either in our interview when you were interviewing me or before this show. And I wanted to ask, where are we now in terms of the impact automation and AI are having on the workforce, workplace, and marketplace diversity, equity, and inclusion? What can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah, well, thanks for that question. So I think that right now we're going through this sort of dangerous blind love stage with automation and AI. And I'll I'll tell you what I mean about that. So essentially, I did a survey earlier this year. And when I looked at the results, I found them rather surprising. One is in the area of HR, they're just gobbling up new technologies. They're using technologies that are powered by AI to do things like read through resumes that's not that new but it's being used to a greater degree now than it was a couple of years ago using technologies to do things like determine who is a high potential in an organization who has the ability to move up to the next level using technology to do things like set salary how much money should this person be making based on the role that they have and the work that they're doing and the experience they bring to the table and all the way down the line through the entire employee life cycle. In fact, there are technologies out there that are being prepared to actually take over much of the interviewing process so that not only will a bot pick the resume, but a bot will determine whether you get to see a human. And then another bot will determine how much you get paid and so forth through that entire life cycle. On the business side, same thing, just a big upward curve of usage. In fact, organizations every day are just finding different ways to use technology to do things like keep up with clients, determine where they should be focusing their resources, what markets they should be pursuing, and so forth. Now, the speed of that adoption is certainly something that is surprising to some degree. But what's more surprising, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started the program, is this whole idea of how people perceive these technologies to be less biased than humans. So one of the questions that I asked in my survey, the responses came back from HR leaders in about 74 different pretty large organizations. And one of the questions was, what do you believe the impact will be on the workforce, workplace, and marketplace of the adoption of these technologies. Do you think it will make the workplace and the workforce and the marketplace more equitable and more inclusive, less equitable and inclusive, or you're not sure, and it depends on other factors. An overwhelming number of people, 63% said on the human resources side, in terms of workforce and workplace, inclusion and equity, that it would automatically increase because these weren't machines and they don't have human biases. They thought 70%, 70% thought the same would happen in terms of being able to service a wider market and have a positive impact on the marketplace. And the reason why that really stunned me is because nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that these technologies, as you mentioned before we came on the show, do have biases embedded in them based on who programs them. In some cases, they also get biases based on historical data and the historical data that's used to train them and the things that they pick out of that data and the assumptions they make. So case in point, Amazon had an AI system that they were using for recruiting that they had to take offline when they realized that it was biased against women. And when they looked back to find out why, what they found was that they were using historical data and 15, 20 years ago, they were not hiring that many women. The system looking at that data as a model for learning what it should be doing and not doing assume that only men could be successful at Amazon. And so despite all the stated efforts they had to increase their diversity and increase their inclusion, the system was basically filtering out women and only filtering for men because it erroneously assumed that what was a condition that just historically existed was actually a feature that it should be taking into account when it looked to select candidates for jobs. So I was talking about this So just to wrap this up a bit, I was talking to a uh, friend of mine who I was interviewing on another program, and he's a data scientist. And he said something that I thought was really interesting about this, the way he kind of wrapped it up. He said, you know, Joe, we are today with automation and AI where we were with social media 15, 20 years ago. So if you think back 15, 20 years ago, what were people talking about when they talked about social media? how it was going to bring us all together, how we were going to be able to share all these photographs and stay in touch with all our college buddies, how we were going to be able to communicate ideas that we enjoy to other people in the family and our friend group and so forth, et cetera. And then what happened? Then a couple of years later, about two decades later now, people started looking at this and saying, hey, there's a couple of red flags here. Like, In fact, this could destroy democracy, right? But that wasn't thought of back then when everybody was really excited about all of this possibility and potential. So we're exactly there again, but this time with AI and automation, where we're looking at, wow, we could do so many different things. We can do things faster, better, cheaper. The organization can have a bigger footprint throughout the world using all these different technologies. But what we may not be looking at is what are some of the things that can go wrong here and what are some of the steps that we probably need to take in order to address that before it gets way out of hand?
1: Well, that's fascinating. And I know that you have a unique background to be able to talk about this because you are in the DEI field, but you also have a technology background these things that you bring up are not even things that I have ever questioned, right? I've never even thought about big companies using AI and things like that to sort resumes and to figure out who gets interviews and who doesn't. That's pretty amazing. And like some other people, I probably would have assumed that it would increase equitable hiring practices. I'm curious though about the inclusive part because to me, inclusivity is the human factor. I may just be biased in my own way, but I can't see how AI can do inclusion. Can you help me with that?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, interesting enough, today there are also applications that are being created in order to encourage inclusion or to encourage people to connect with each other. We know that we're moving away from having workforces that are all in one campus. So we're going to be relying more on technology to bring people together. We're gonna be relying on technology to create those moments and create those opportunities for people that years ago might've been created by happenstance meetings in the hallway or people participating in a project that brought them into the same conference room. Now, where we get into a situation where maybe the technology may not, say for example, help us to create more inclusion is when something like this happens. So let me give you a quick example. More and more technology is going to be used in the next couple of years to the next decade to determine things like who should be on what projects, who should be on this project or that project. And it's going to be based on the technology determining who has the skill set or who has the ability to perform in that particular project. Now, the good news there is that more people will probably get into the pool of available talent for these projects, because it won't depend anymore on who Joe or Kim know and who Joe or Kim call on a regular basis whenever they have a project that requires a certain skill set. We'll be able to go to a system that goes out and finds us people. But here is the other side of the coin. How the system determines what skills people have have a lot to do with the proxies that the system is using for determining the presence or absence of a particular skill. Traditionally, We've had situations where organizations, say, for example, are looking for someone to put into an assignment out in, let's say, South America that is going to be uh, leading a group out in South America. And what they'll do is, as a proxy, what they'll look for is, have you worked in South America? Do you have that experience of working in South America? Have you been in South America? What it doesn't look for is do you come from that culture? <laughs> do you come from a culture? You're, you could be a first generation American who's of Argentinian or Peruvian descent, who knows the culture well, speaks the language. But because the searchers are looking for a criteria that poses the question, have you worked in Peru? Or have you worked in Argentina? You don't get into their radar. Well, now systems are going to be doing that. And so, inclusion is all about giving everyone that equal opportunity to sort of play, being invited into the dance. But the machines are going to be more involved in determining who gets invited into the dance based on who meets certain criteria that are used as a proxy for determining whether they have what it takes to get into that dance. So, that's how the machines, if not properly supervised and managed, can end up blocking people who are qualified. Somebody who learned how to be a great manager by managing an ERG may not make the cut to get an assignment that involves a first-level management role because managing an ERG is not how the system has been primed or told to look for people who have management experience.
1: Wow. I can see a lot of challenges with that kind of technology. Wow. Wow. So what are the signals that indicate our direction and where all this is headed, do you think, Joe?
0: There are two things that I think are going to bring these two forces into a closer and closer almost collision course. And that is, number one, there is an increased need for organizations to engage a diverse workforce, not just because they're trying to do that for the reasons of it being the good thing to do or a nice thing to do. It's a necessity to do. There's a stat out there that says that less than 60% of the working age people will be non-Hispanic white by 2024. That's three years from now. And that statistic, if you look, if you take and you break out our demographics by age groups, you'll notice that the younger the age group, the richer the demographic diversity. So clearly that is telling us the direction in which the world is going. In fact, I was just interviewing the other day, the CEO of a hospital, Frederick Health, that's based out in Wisconsin. I was interviewing Catherine Jacobson, who's the CEO out there. And she was talking about how in a lot of their diversity efforts, one of the drivers, not the only driver, but one of the drivers is that as that area where they operate becomes more diverse, they realize that the population that they need to be able to attract into their healthcare system in order to be able to meet their goals and objectives as a system are going to come from a more and more diverse population. And again, that's just demographics. And that's not just in Wisconsin where she's operating, but it's all around the, uh, the United States and other countries. On top of that, another thing that's going to drive more diversity from the global stage is going to be the fact that technology, again, is making it possible for more and more people to work remotely. So you can have people that are living in another country who literally are working in our country. And in fact, there is this thing now called the remote visa, the remote worker visa. Uh, And there are a lot of countries out there, the Caymans, I think Barbados is another one, Spain in Europe, all over the world. There are countries now that have these remote worker visas, which allow people to live where they want and work somewhere else. Well, that's going to increase the diversity of people that are working in our different organizations, because not only is our diversity increasing locally, but we're also getting diversity from outside our local regions. Now, At the same time that that's happening, this increase is happening in the use of technology in all aspects of human resources and and business. And there's a big driver there to do this, which is, again, cost, 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 the ability to do it faster and cheaper. A good human recruiter who makes between, say, 50, 160K can scan one resume in about six seconds. An okay AI can do 600 in one second. Oh my goodness. Yes. So it's very clear that there's no competition between that human when it comes to scanning and the AI. And AI can certainly beat a human hands down when it comes to that. So as companies attempt to become more competitive and to continue to grow their footprint around the world. They're going to hire more people. They're going to be hiring more people that are from diverse backgrounds, whether locally or globally. And at the same time, they're going to have these systems. What we need to think about in terms of where all this is headed is that we want to make sure that the systems that we're putting in place that are becoming so integral to our operation don't block the diversity that we're going to need in order to keep our organizations competitive. So that's one reason why now is the time to act. We need to make sure that these systems are able to give us all the benefits that they can give in terms of speed, low cost, and all that without hindering our ability to be able to continue to hire, engage, and include that diverse workforce that's going to become even bigger and bigger and bigger and is going to be necessary for us to be able to compete in the future.
1: Well, you know, from my perspective, in the conversation we had about choice theory, I'm concerned about the psychology of the people that we hire, right? It's not just skill set. It's do we have a leader on the team? Do we have a connection person on the team who can read the other people and take the temperature of the group? Do we have a fun person on the team to keep people engaged in their work? Can AI factor those things in?
0: Yes, it can be factored in. But what we need to do is manage the... AI system to make sure that, A, it doesn't filter out things that we want and that it doesn't accidentally make assumptions based on historical data that may be outdated. We can tune systems to do that by the way that we train them, by the kind of training data that we give them. And we can then observe and see, am I getting the kind of people that I'm looking for? And if I'm not, then go back to your vendor or go back to your programmer and start looking at, is it the algorithm? Is it the data that we're using to train it? What do we need to change? And whether it's diversity in terms of neural diversity, cognitive diversity, diversity of styles, diversity of, you name the dimension of diversity. The key to making sure that these systems don't filter out things that we need and we want is that we have to supervise them. We have to look at what they're doing because in many cases, what they're doing is happening inside a black box. So we're saying, I need this. And then it goes in there and based on an algorithm that was developed through learning data, it says, these are the people that are your candidates for this. Well, we can't just accept that and say, well, The God machine told us that these are the people that we need to look at. So that's what we're going to do. We need to question that and ask questions about, well, does this batch of people, does it represent what we're looking for? Does it have that breadth of diversity, whether, again, it's demographic, neural, or other cognitive forms of diversity? Are those there? And if they're not, then we need to go back and we need to tweak the system. But again, vigilance is the key. You can have a better result in terms of, of diversity, inclusion, and equity across all the different dimensions, but it requires human intervention, human action. A friend of mine and I were talking about AIs and humans in terms of working together is that an AI is a lot like a child. It looks at the world with innocent eyes and it learns from what it sees. So given whatever data you give it, it's going to make certain assumptions based on that data. And like a child, we would never leave a child watching TV 24 by seven and expect it to grow up and to be a good, solid citizen <laughs> that, uh, that lives a fulfilling and purposeful life. We would select, we would say, no, you can't watch that TV show or no, we're going to curtail this a little bit. And it's the same thing with these systems. They're very, very fast and they're very good at what they do, but we need to be involved in the process of shaping them and maintaining their direction.
1: I think it would greatly change the job of the chief diversity officers in corporations now. They're going to be supervising machines more than they are people, perhaps. Be interesting to see. What are the four possible scenario outcomes for organizations? I know you were talking about that earlier.
0: What I did when I looked at this as I was putting the book together is I put on a futurist hat and I said, "Okay, so... In the cone of possibility, because we can't really predict the future, we can only forecast it at best and say, given all of these different signals and all of these different things that are going on, where is this thing headed? And a lot of it has to do with what those non-technical business leaders do. You mentioned the, the chief diversity officers. They're certainly an important part of this. Now, they don't have to become techies. They don't need to become data scientists in order to do this. But they do need to learn how to make sure that they've got some kind of governance over this or a voice in this and that they're involved in not passively letting these systems that are taking over more and more of the roles that they care about do so without their being involved in that process. Here are the four scenarios that I came up with for this. So the first scenario is the Luddites. And as that name implies, these are the people that are not going to get involved. They're going to say, I'm not a techie. I'm not getting involved in this. And I'm just going to sit back and this is IT's job or someone else's job. Or maybe I'll get involved someday if it becomes really important. And I start seeing that it has a big impact. Now, I would say that going out 10 years or so, these companies are going to have difficulty getting the best talent available because that talent's going to become more diverse and they're not going to be attractive to that talent and their systems may actually filter out that talent. Their salary costs may go up for sure because whenever you create an artificial constraint, it's supply and demand. So If the only kind of people that you're looking for fit a criteria that's only 33% of the population, you've created an artificial supply and demand constraint. And of course, when you have that issue, you're going to have an issue in terms of servicing your clients. And I think that organizations like that, unless they're able to turn themselves around pretty quickly, are going to be the ones that are heading for their own extinction, because they're not able to manage those two forces of the world has become extremely diverse, more diverse than it was before, globally and locally. And we need to make more use of these systems in order to be faster, quicker, and more nimble in the current competitive environment. So my second group is slow laggards. So slow laggards are the people that go to the conferences and they hear the leaders talk about their best practices and they take all the notes and then they go back to their organization and they have a hard time convincing their own leadership that they should do anything about this stuff because the leadership is looking at the world through their own bubble and filter. And so they, they don't adopt these things quickly enough. So these are organizations that are maybe a step or two behind the Luddites. And again, they need to catch up a little bit if they're going to turn that around. Then the third group, I call them the fast laggards. So, the fast laggards years ago, you might recall, Kim, were called fast followers. But I think fast laggards is a better name for them <laughs> because fast followers years ago when there was less disruption. It might've been an admirable thing to do because you weren't on the bleeding edge of technology and you could very quickly catch up. But today at the pace that everything moves, it's not a quality that makes for a very competitive business. So fast laggards, they go to the conferences, they learn the best practices. And the only difference between them and the slow laggards is when they go back, they just put these things to work. They put them to work pretty quickly. And so those companies are in a somewhat healthier position than the slow laggards and certainly than the luddites, but they're certainly not the leaders. So they're not the employer of choice. They're not the partner of choice. They're not in that league because again, they're just followers. And so fast laggards are kind of the best of the breed in terms of the followers. And then the fourth group is the thriving leaders. And these are the companies where the non-technical leaders have gotten ahead of the pack. These are the ones that are taking action right away, they start with good governance practices around these systems. And then those governance practices evolve. Anyone who's ever done anything, started a business or worked in a particular profession knows that when you start to do something early, you learn from the experiences you have, you're able to pivot as needed as the situation evolves. And those companies are the employers of choice. They're the partners of choice because they also have the people that they need to get the work done. They're not paying excessive amount in their cost of salaries and so forth. And therefore, they're able to be more efficient and more cost effective for their clients as well. So those are the four basic scenarios It's sort of from the dystopia to utopia, and then the two steps in between those two extremes that I see coming out as a result of the increase in diversity and inclusion that's needed by organizations simultaneous with the need for an increased adoption of technology in order to remain competitive.
1: And did I hear you right? Did you say that in that fourth group, you had non-technical leaders in that fourth group embracing technology?
0: Yeah, I think that's the key. The key is that non-technical leaders, so in a lot of cases, the non-technical leaders include people like the CDO. They include people like the CHRO. They include people like the line managers who run, let's say, operations or other areas. They include people who are not technical people. They're not the people who are going to program and build an AI or build an automation system, but they're people who are involved in making sure that these systems are run in a way that produces the best outcomes and avoid the worst outcomes of having them unmanaged.
1: Very cool. So what's the challenge for non-technical leaders who want to maintain competitiveness through the continued workforce, workplace, marketplace, diversity, equity, and inclusion?
0: I think the biggest challenge right now is to recognize that this is something they need to be involved in now and not wait until it becomes urgent. So in the book, I use this story that came out of a experience I had a couple of years ago when I was with my kids. They were much younger and they were in the park and I was watching these kids play a game of tag and there were three of them. One was the pursuer and two were running and there was this fence that was up ahead. And one of the kids just happened to look up, could have been luck or happenstance, but he just looked up and he saw that fence. And when he saw it, he poured on the speed. So he had that momentum going for him and he was able to sail over the fence. The other guy didn't see the fence on time. And when he looked up, by the time he saw it, it was like dead in front of him. He didn't have the runway to build up that the degree of speed that he needed to be able to clear it. And so all he could do is just start to slow down so he wouldn't crash into the thing and wait for the pursuer who, you know, with a big grin on his face, knew he had him coming in and closing in for the kill, right? As I sat there and and watched that at the time, I didn't think much of it. But years later, as I thought about it, I realized that There's a little lesson in there as there is often in a lot of these little moments that happen in life. And that lesson is that a lot of times your ability to succeed at something, your ability to meet a challenge often has to do not with what you do when that challenge is immediately in your face, but what you did way back when you had that opportunity to turn on the gas and start really running quicker or moving toward it quicker or addressing it. I think that for managers now, the challenge is to start picking up that speed now, because it's not an emergency at this point. It will become one, for sure, in the next couple of years, probably in the next five years, 10 years, I would have said 15 years out, but after the pandemic, that seemed to become even more fuel behind increasing automation in organizations in the next five or 10 years. And if they wait until it's too late, they're going to have the same experience as the kid who saw the fence when he was almost on top of it.
1: So you're basically encouraging people to be early adapters and not one of those either fast or slow laggers. You don't want that.
0: Absolutely. What I think they should start doing is they should start becoming aware of What technologies are we using? How are we using them? How are those performing? And they should really look at these things in a critical way and determine whether or not these things are aligned with their overall larger goals as an organization, including those diversity, equity, and inclusion goals.
1: Yep. So how can HR, DEI, and other non-technical business and people managers prepare to steer their organizations in the right direction?
0: I think the key is to really focus on the governance and managing and not letting their lack of technical know-how put them off. One of the things that I talk about when I talk to other people about this is how much stuff we use that we really don't know that much about, and we manage it pretty well. Like, for example, all of us, to some degree or another, use electricity, but we're not electricians. I don't know exactly how you put together a cabling system or much less the science behind how electrons move across some medium to produce the energy needed to light my office or to power the microphone. But I do know how to plug things into outlets. I do know that if the electricity goes out in my house, I go down to the basement and whichever one of those little breakers is facing the wrong direction, if I push it in the right direction, it'll bring the power back up. So I can manage... The current coming into my house without being an electrical expert, an expert electrician, or an expert in the power of electricity. The same thing is true with technology. I think sometimes it's the mystery of it and how it works, and it's cloaked in words that sometimes seem alien to people. I know a lot of the data scientists that I've interviewed, when they talk about this stuff, they talk about, well, you know, when you are managing the technology, you have to consider whether you're gonna do something in the pre-processing or the in-processing or the post-processing. And if you get sort of bogged down into all of that, it feels like something that you shouldn't, as a non-technical manager, get involved with. But the fact is, just like the electricity in my home, You can set up policies that basically say, we want our technology to accomplish these things. We want to make sure that our technology does not weed out things like cognitive diversity, neurodiversity, or other forms of diversity. We want to make sure that it engages broadly with all the demographics that are out there. We can set up committees of people in management. We can set up subcommittees and groups that feed information up in terms of how is this working. And then we can compare that to the policy and we can say, well, you know, this is either performing as we like or not performing as we like. And then we can go back to the people who actually program these systems or work with these systems and say, the system is currently doing this, but we want to achieve that. We need to make changes to it and then let them jump into the fray there and take care of what needs to be done then on the technical side. But management cannot put itself in the sort of penalty box and be absent from that decision making and just say, leave it up to the technical people to do this, because the technical people may be experts on how to develop these systems, how to run these systems, but they may not be experts in the policies And in the business and then the other things that we need in order to be successful. So we need to form that partnership where non-technical managers step in and get involved to manage and provide governance, some level of governance to make sure that there's an alignment between the organization's goals and what these technologies are doing. And that's essentially what my book is about. That's what that book is primarily shaping up into.
1: So the idea of non-technical people being able to say hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil as it relates to technology would not be a good approach.
0: (laughs) No, that just lets evil grow completely unabated.
1: So one of the things that occurs to me as you're talking about this, as someone who does diversity training myself, who's going to manage all this diversity? So you're going to hire all this diversity and you're going to bring teams together. Do you think that sometime in the future, you're talking about putting on your futuristic hat, that diversity won't cause the kind of conflict that it does in the workforce today? Do you think that at some point diversity is just going to be a part of what people know how to handle? Is that possible?
0: You know, Kim, that's a great question because I have thought about that a lot. I'm of two minds here. I think that many of the dimensions of diversity that we today grapple with making sure that everyone is included and that there is equity, I think that some of those things will, over time, be resolved. Amen. Slowly, probably too slowly, because they are being resolved slowly, but I think that in the long arc of time, certain things will be resolved. But having said that, I think that we will continue to produce distinctions that we probably don't even have labels for today that will create new types of diversity tomorrow. I think that contrary to what a lot of people I've heard in organizations say business leaders that I've heard say, well, you know, one day we'll get all this together and then we won't have to worry about diversity and inclusion anymore. I believe that we may not have to worry about the kind of diversity and inclusion that we're focusing on today, but that as the world evolves, there will probably be forms of diversity that we're not even thinking about today that we will then need to grapple with in the future. So I think that people who are in this role, in this career, who are starting out, have a pretty safe trajectory, that there's going to be a need for them going out into the future. It's just that they may be doing things that are slightly different. Just like people that started in this role years ago were looking primarily at gender and one or two identified racial groups. And then later on, there were other layers and other dimensions of diversity that were added on. That process is going to continue.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I want to give you an opportunity to share any last thoughts you might have with the audience before I ask you how to get in touch with you so my listeners can reach out if they want to. Do you have any last thoughts you want to share?
0: I would say in terms of what we've been talking about, the topic that we've been talking about, if you're working in a corporation right now, whether you know it or not, They're using automation and AI in their HR processes. They're using automation and AI in a lot of their business processes. And if you don't know about it, you should kind of try to find out what is going on. And you should... Try to find out if they already have efforts underway to make sure that these systems operate in an ethical, inclusive, and equitable way. And if not, perhaps you can uh, volunteer to get involved, learn more about them, and begin this process. Because I think this is going to become a critical process to ensuring that we continue moving forward with diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially as we head into what a lot of people are calling this digital golden age.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for being here. I'd like to ask you how my audience members can reach you if they want to. And maybe you could give us some thoughts about that. Well, you already have one book, but when your new book might be out.
0: Yeah. So my new book will be out in September. So I'm looking at the end of September. So it's a fall book. In terms of reaching me, the best way to reach me are the following. One, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, so I'm Joe Santana on LinkedIn. Easy enough. You can also access my website, which is www.joesantana.com. No spaces or anything. So www.joesantana.com. I'm happy to answer questions. I offer a lot of different free resources. Like for example, I send out a weekly letter, which contains a lot of articles and information about five or six of my favorite that I pick up in my research. I share those on a regular basis freely with people in the DEI space. So if anybody wants to contact me about that, that'd be great. Happy to add you to the list.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Very generous, Joe. And once again, I just want to thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have more conversations in the future. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Kim. My pleasure being here with you.
1: I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be changing topics to mental health and choice theory and interviewing Jeff Steedman about successfully working through a life-threatening illness using choice theory concepts. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then.
0: This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.